verses 57 to 80. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Amen. Here's a little starter for 10 folks. A bit random, maybe. But what is your favorite button on your TV remote? And I know that that may be a fairly redundant question for some of you, because I reckon you've never gotten near your remote control, have you? First, you need to prize that object from your significant other's cold dead hand <laughs> but let's just say you know what i'm talking about well there's the on button and there's the off button 
and they're both the same button. So there's a top candidate to begin with. And some of your remotes will have a Netflix button. So that takes you straight to your favorite show without messing around with menus. And if you've got a Sky remote, then the Sky button will take you to all the shows that you've recorded off the telly. Well, none of these buttons is my own personal favorite. All things considered, kind of fond of the mute button. Because I enjoy watching live sports and live sports are absolutely plagued with adverts. As Dom said in his sermon last week, advertisers are masters at reshaping what you want. And personally, I don't like being reshaped very much. So I hit mute and find that makes them a lot easier to ignore. Now, when we break into our gospel narrative in Luke 1 here this morning, we see that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, is currently on mute. How come he's currently on mute? Well, back in Luke 1, verses 5 and 6, we were introduced to him as a priest of the temple in Jerusalem. And that he and his wife Elizabeth were both righteous before God and walked blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. Now that doesn't mean they were all perfect and shiny. But it does mean they were true believers. And that their lives were marked by devotion to God. And on a very special day, Zechariah when he was called to burn incense in the temple the archangel Gabriel appeared to him and Gabriel spoke to him in verse 13 do not be afraid Zechariah for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John and somewhat bizarrely Zechariah pretty much rejected these words. And he said to Gabriel in verse 18, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And so the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, sometimes today, some of us might wish that God would communicate more spectacularly to us through, uh, this, than through the Spirit and his word. Just give me a sign, Lord. Speak to me in some more hair-tingling kind of way. Well, Zechariah got an angel, and he still didn't believe him. So if you don't believe in God's infallible word, 
then there's no guarantee you'd believe an angel if he appeared to you in Asda. And when we fast forward to our text again in verse 57 and the birth of John the Baptist, we find that God still hasn't unmuted Zechariah nine months down the line. That seems pretty rough. But Zechariah not only didn't believe the angel's words about his aging Elizabeth having a son, he essentially didn't believe that God is who he says he is. That God holds the power to intervene in our lives and perform the miraculous if he so wishes. And as a priest, Zechariah had all the information in what we call the Old Testament or what the Jews call the Tanakh. That God has always performed wonders. The prime example in Elizabeth's case being that Sarah back in Genesis miraculously bore Isaac in her old age. So Zechariah's righteousness and blamelessness before God didn't mean that he was fully trusting God like he should have been. Like you'd expect such a man of God to do. And all this just makes clear to us that you can be a true believer and still doubt. You can live in general obedience to God's word and yet at times be skeptical in applying what you believe in your head to your own life situation. I think that happens all the time. We can often be inconsistent in our hearts. And how would you personally cope if you were muted like Zechariah was by God for nine months. Barely a long while to stay silent and unable to speak. How perhaps would the person who's just popped into your head right now cope with having preached doom for so long? coupled with the fact that it seems nine months of deafness was thrown into Zechariah's predicament for good measure. Because we read in verse 59 and following that eight days following the birth of his baby, he doesn't really know what all the neighbors and relatives are squabbling about at the little ceremony. miracle child is due to be both circumcised and officially named and poor Elizabeth was getting it in the neck for wanting to call him John and not Zechariah like his daddy you have found that your friends and family are the real experts at naming your child you really need their help to get it just right.
don't know why that is. But it says in verse 59 that they would have called him Zechariah after his father. The neighbors and relatives would, not the parents. And when Elizabeth, the child's mother, said, no, he shall be called John, they got all into a kind of collective lip curl. It's not a family name. Come on, what a terrible idea. And so they have to appeal to the boy's father and make signs to him because clearly can't hear what's going on. And so they signal to him, are you really going to give him a non-family name? So mute or not, deaf or not, Zechariah really needs to defend his wife and stand his ground. When you've been told by an angel what God wants your child to be called, and you've been kicking yourself for months for not believing him in the first place, then you definitely need to stand your ground. earlier he's obviously managed to write down in front of Elizabeth what Gabriel had told him that his name was to be so Elizabeth had displayed her faith and obedience to God in telling others that the boy was to be called John and so now would Zechariah do likewise well he asks for a writing tablet, which I'm informed would have been a wooden tablet covered with wax. And on it he wrote, his name is John. And that he put emphasis on the is. So he probably underlined it quite a few times on the wax. His name is John. So after circa nine months and eight days of silence, at the exact moment he had finished writing, Zechariah got his voice back. And he spoke, it says, blessing God. The angel's words had all come true. And God had finally pressed unmute, as it were. And surely along with that, had given him his hearing back as well. Now the key point, says Daryl Bock, is that Zechariah learned from his period of silence. The sign of silence worked. And he, even as an already righteous man, learned to trust God's word even more. So I think that he learned some perspective in the silence. And that God wasn't punishing him in the silence. He was refining him. And over all those months, his faith in God had grown. So by the end, it's almost like his faith had built up inside him like some pressurized pipeline. And when the air release valves were opened, as it were, it was to the tune of much rejoicing 
and praise toward God. Do you remember back to when your faith was at its absolute most vibrant and energetic and full of life? Maybe for some of you that's right now. And that's awesome. Praise God if that's so. Or maybe for you that was nine years ago now, not nine months ago. Or even 19 or 29 years ago. Since then, perhaps you feel you've kind of lost your voice a bit. Not your literal voice box, of course, but you know, you just feel a bit jaded, perhaps a bit cynical, perhaps a bit tired, maybe a bit frustrated. Well, it's important to know that God's not frustrated with you any more than he was with Zechariah. No way. Not when he works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. No, God's not frustrated with you. He's not cynical. He's not jaded. And he's not tired of you. He loves you and we love you. The church family loves you, whatever you're struggling with. So you don't need to be afraid to say that you're struggling. You don't have to pretend that you've got it all together to be in the family of God and remain in the family of God. You don't need to suffer in silence even when times are tough. A troubled person is a person to love, not a problem to fix. And people often change slowly and struggle deeply, says David Powison. And you can be sure that through it all, God's refining you out of his love for you. You don't know the half of what he's up to. This is what J.I. Packer says. God brings on dryness with resultant restlessness of heart in order to induce a new depth of humble, hopeful openness to himself, which he then crowns with a liberating and animating reassurance of his love, one that goes beyond anything that was sensed before. that be so whatever you're going through
as we move on to this last little block of Luke 1, we can see that the people were in awe of all that had taken place. That they were filled with a reverential fear and great expectation of what John was going to be. Verse 66. The boy was the talk of the whole hill country of Judea. And now Zechariah's voice is full of the Holy Spirit now that he's found it again. Full of the Holy Spirit and full of prophecy. Verse 67. Now, whenever we say to someone, take care and God bless, or perhaps more formally, the Lord bless you and keep you, I think we mean by that, may God strengthen you and help you. But here, when Zechariah blesses God in verse 64 and begins his prophecy in verse 68 with, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It's not the same meaning of bless, now is it? He isn't saying to God, may he be strengthened and helped. Because unlike us, God is the source of all help and strength. And not lacking in anything. Unlike us, God is in a perpetually blessed state. So when we bless God rather than asking God to bless us, it really just means we're giving praise and thanks to God. By blessing God, we're saying, Lord, how great you are. It's all part of our delight in God, to bless God, to praise him, to thank him. And it quickly becomes obvious that Zechariah isn't going to spend much of his breath blessing God in this prophecy for John. The focus here is really not on his son, but on God's. In fact, there are really only two verses dedicated to John here. Verses 76 and 77. And we'll get to them shortly. But I think the point of the section is that although squishy newborn babies are good news they're not the best good news even if they've an important part to play in God's kingdom because the capital G good news is that one particular child is the one who will rescue us from eternal death the one who is God incarnate whose own perfect life and horrible death will achieve that for us. 
this is what Zechariah immediately praises God for. He already knows that Mary is pregnant with Jesus after her visit to Elizabeth. And by this stage, she has already given her Magnificat. And so when he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's saying God has already visited. That he's already here. As a fetus. Emmanuel. God with us. It's already here. Just not yet born. With us. But still in Mary. And he has visited not just to heal our pain. But with a much bigger purpose. To free us from our bondage. To redeem his people. And his achievement of redemption is so certain. That it's described in the past tense too. The expectation is certain that he won't fail his mission. Even though as we see in verse 78. The sunrise or the light of the world, as Jesus is also called, is yet to accomplish it. He shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. Verse 79. Likewise, in verse 69, Zechariah points to Jesus not John. The horn of salvation that God has raised up is clearly not John because he has raised, he has been raised up in the house of David. And John is from the house of Levi. David is from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus is great David's greater son the Lion of Judah. And the horn of salvation is a sign of Jesus' ability. Not his musical ability, but a horn symbolizing his strength, his power. It's the strength and power of a bull's horns. This language was used in the Old Testament, for example, in Psalm 13417, where God says, I will make a horn to sprout for David. And so the horn of salvation is Jesus, the long prophesied horn of David, come to achieve his purpose.
Jesus never had puny power. Even when he was little. Even at his birth. He was vulnerable in one sense. And yet always protected by God's power. The number one song the year I was born was a hit by Kenny Rogers. Boy, do I feel old. I'll let you guess the year. But I'll let you know that the song was called The Gambler. And it's about how a card sharp who makes the best guesses he thinks are possible in poker and in life. It's about teaching someone how to make the best decisions based on the most probable outcomes. And we're all gamblers in one sense. Because we don't know the exact outcome of every step we take in our lives. All the steps in our lives are not revealed to us in advance. What's going to happen when you wake up tomorrow? If I leave my washing out on the line, will it be dry in the morning? Probably not. Unless you're Alec and Margaret on holiday in Fuerteventura. But probably it will. We take little educated risks all the time. And sometimes big ones. But God is no gambler. Unlike us, he knows every outcome of every event in advance. Never once did he gamble with his son's life before he went to the cross to die. No one could touch Jesus before his appointed time. No soldier of Herod's, no rock of the Pharisees could mess up God's horn of salvation plan. Jesus went to the cross willingly and that horn was raised from the dead in great power. He was strong to save from the moment of his conception. And he is strong to save until he returns again. as the promises of God were made to his people of old so his promises are being kept for the coming of Messiah Zechariah especially proclaims the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in verse 69 and then later of the Abrahamic oath made in Genesis 12 verse 17 following 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God is always faithful to his promises so that we might faithfully serve him. Verse 74, without fear. So that is the joyful obedience of the saved, not the slavish service of the legalists. A service to God where no condemnation now we dread. Jesus and all in him is ours. Alive in him our living head and clothed in righteousness divine. This not only applies to our service within the church family, but to all of life as well. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And when Zechariah begins to focus in on John, it's to tell us that John will point to Jesus too. That's really the point of John's whole ministry. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, verse 76. Give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, verse 77. Now, back in Luke 1, 17, Gabriel also told Zechariah that he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And in Malachi 4, verse 5, in the very last words of the Old Testament, we read something similar. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So was John really a reappearance of Elijah himself? No, says John himself. In response to the question, are you Elijah? In John 1.21, he answers, I am not. But is John really the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy? Yes, says Jesus. For those who can accept it. Because it seems not everyone can. But Jesus says clearly in Matthew 11.14, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. 
So he's not Elijah in one sense, but he is in another because Jesus says so. And Gabriel says so. John had a very similar calling to Elijah. Elijah's ministry calling was to bring God's people to repentance, to turn their hearts back to God. And John's calling as a second Elijah is to prepare the way of the Lord, also calling God's people to repentance. And with a baptism of repentance, that's why he's got his name, John the Baptist, to turn the people's hearts back to God by pointing them to God the Son. And so by the end of Luke 1, you can see that John's well in his way to being the big, hairy, neon arrow that he was called to be. And John is someone that Jesus himself would point to as the greatest of all men. Do you remember? Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Matthew eleven eleven. What made John greater than Abraham? Greater than Moses? Greater than David? Greater than anyone else in the Old Testament? Well, although those men did point forward to Jesus in some way, they couldn't point quite as directly to Jesus as John could. Only John could see Jesus walking towards him and was able to point and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No one before him ever had that unique privilege. And that's what made John the greatest. But Jesus didn't stop there, did he? There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Whoa. <laughs> that means that you, believer in Jesus, in Grace Church Dundee, greater than John the Baptist, greater than David and Moses and Abraham. Because you 
can now point to Jesus in a greater way than any of them could. You can point to his crucifixion, his resurrection, him being the chief cornerstone and head of the church and the king who will return in a way that even John could not. Do you see your place of dignity in God's kingdom? Your proximity to greatness in God's eyes. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, he's your lamb. He's removed your sins. And you have the great privilege to point others to him. Evangelism is not a duty to perform. It's not a cross we must bear. It's a privilege we're granted, says Max Stiles. And in contrast to that, in the New York Times last week, a well-known figure said this. Listen to this. The Bible says in the last days, now I don't know if it's the last days, it's not my place to know, but it says we'll be lovers of ourselves. The number one photograph today is a selfie. Oh, me, at the protests. Me, with the fire. Follow me. Listen to me. Who said that? It was Denzel Washington. And he also said the enemy is the inner me. He's dead right. recognize well that most of the world is crazily pointing their little signposts in the exact wrong direction from where they should be. Our privilege as believers is we get the grace to look away from ourselves and point to someone way way more glorious and beautiful and pure and loving and powerful to save. So if you feel you've maybe lost your voice somewhat, perhaps soon you'll find it again probably to your great surprise because God does like to surprise us sometimes and I 
love that line there in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. You and I can always look forward in hope because God is more merciful than we are cynical. And we can recall the time when God the Father pressed mute on himself when Jesus was on the cross for our sake. He was silent to those cries of Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus had to endure the agony of that separation as he suffered in our place. So that you can hear his voice today through his word. And you can speak for him and enjoy his company this week. with the prospect of speaking to him face to face very soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we humbly bow our hearts before you now and bless you for the great God that you are, for revealing your character to us in the word, and most incredibly in the living word when he broke into time and space and arrived in a cattle stall in Bethlehem all those years ago that we want to celebrate and remember now. We thank you for sending him. We thank you for fulfilling your ancient promises for showing us that you are a faithful God to all that you say so that we can look forward to the future and not doubt that all that you have said will come to pass will happen very soon We don't want to live off our own resources. By your grace, help us to look away from ourselves and point to Jesus. Fix our eyes on him. Be made whole in him. Find our full voice again. 
by your mercy for your glory. Sing Majesty.